Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, just as we approach Halloween, we're going to head south to the lovely city of San Diego and discuss a house considered by many to be the most haunted house in America. I am, of course, speaking of the Wiley House. So, why is this place haunted? Well, I actually think it'd be best to start at the very beginning. For those of you who are not familiar with the history of San Diego, California, in 1796, a fort and a mission gets built in this general vicinity and under the rule of the Spanish and the Mexican rule, because Mexico actually used to own this part of California, the area gradually expands into what's considered a settlement. Then, in 1848, of course, right before the gold gets discovered in California, and thanks to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, California gets purchased on February 2nd, 1848, for a whopping $15 million. Then, in 1850, California becomes a state. Now, as I said before, this area has been occupied and had a lot of comings and goings for actually a couple of decades by 1850. And this includes obviously people coming and establishing businesses and building homes and starting trade and creating commerce. But with the gold being discovered later in 1848, there of course is a mad rush of people coming to California. And with this mad rush comes, obviously, the people who intend to do well in business, the gold miners, and, of course, some of those with ill intentions. So as a city, obviously, they had places for people to live, they had places people to eat, and they had places for people to be buried. Now, in my research, it is actually suggested that the land that the Wiley House would eventually be built on was originally the site of a cemetery. In addition to that, and thanks to all the various people coming in, not everyone that came was a good person. And as such, because crime was on the rise, the city of San Diego had to designate a certain area as gallows to hang those who committed unspeakable or unforgivable crimes. So how does this all come together? Well, one of the most famous hangings on this particular piece of property was that of James Yankee Jim Robinson. So let's talk about who Yankee Jim was. Yankee Jim was actually a French-Canadian who stood six feet tall 
and about six to four inches in height and was considered well-developed, physically speaking. And on some accounts, the man just looked rough, like rough, rough, super rough, if you will. And since image and, you know, personal appearances was just as important as it was back then as it is today, the decent folk kind of avoided him because, like I said, Yankee Jim, I'm not sure why he's called Yankee Jim when he's Canadian, but Yankee Jim was a rough-looking character from the get-go. Side note, Yankee Jim was actually married with three children. But he was your basic 1850s thug and did 1850s hood rat crap, as the panda would say. It's been said via rumors that he and his two besties, James Grayson Loring, and William Harris would mill around various gold mining camps and wait for a miner to be in an isolated area when they would rob him of their gold nuggets, their various other trinkets, and then kill them. Now, aside from these rumors, Yankee Jim was known to be a drunk and a horse thief. So here you have this rough-looking guy committing potentially murder, but a known drunk and definitely a known horse thief. So when he and his besties head down to San Diego, you know this is not going to end well for Jim. So while there, they got the bright idea of stealing a boat. Now, per my research, some of it says it was a simple rowboat that was owned by Joseph C. Stewart and Enos Wall. But some of my other research says It was actually a schooner ship called the Blutus. Either way, this crime is actually considered grand larceny. And, of course, Yankee Jim gets tracked down and he and his compadres get arrested. Now, their case for their crime, of course, goes to court. And I read an account of how Yankee Jim actually did not take this situation seriously. Like, he really thought, The courthouse setting, the judge, everybody that was there was basically there to set him up and scare him. In fact, he didn't take this so seriously to the point where he was actually laughing during the course of the hearing. And he had to be told to stop laughing. This is serious. You know, knock that off. And I I just, he didn't really grasp that there were going to be actual consequences. Of course, none of this matters because on August 18th, 1854, before three justices of the peace, he actually gets convicted of grand larceny. And for this conviction, he gets sentenced to hang. Now, there were some who pushed for hanging immediately. But the, everyone decides, the authority decides to wait 31 days. So on September 18th, Two Catholic priests escort him out of what has been described as an adobe jail. They place him on a wagon, and the wagon drives him to the gallows, which is located in Old Town, San Diego. Now, these gallows consist of two beams planted on the ground with a heavy lyre across the top. But here's where things start to go gruesome, guys. So like I said before, Yankee Jim is six feet four inches tall. He is a big burly man, but the gallows are not prepared to hang a man this tall. 
So what they do is, is they tuck the noose around his neck, then they throw the rest of the rope over the gallows and tie it to the wagon that Yankee Jim just rode on. Then they give Yankee Jim some time to speak his piece before his death, and he basically says, hey guys, I'm a good guy. I've given piles of gold to help the, the men about me. I'm your basic Robin Hood scenario, but it doesn't matter. At the quarter of three, the wagon driver, a Gustav Fischer, is given the signal, and Gustav orders his pack of mules to go. And there, before a large crowd, because, you know, watching a hanging was an outing, you know, a big affair, there, Yankee Jim does everything he can to stand his ground and pushes back on the pack of mules with the noose hanging around his neck, struggling to fight the hanging. But the pack of mules is too much. And finally, Yankee Jim hangs with his body swinging back and forth, just like a pendulum on a clock. So at the young age of 31, Yankee Jim is dead. But we are not done with Yankee Jim. As for his besties, they each get one year in jail. And once they are released, they never return to San Diego. In attendance of this gruesome hanging is a man named Thomas Wiley. The same Thomas Wiley who owns the Wiley House. But first, a little history on him. Thomas was born on October 5th, 1823 in New York, New York to Thomas Alexander Wiley Sr. and his mother, Rachel Pye. Then, in 1848, Thomas heads out west along with the millions who come to the California Gold Rush and ends up working in San Francisco at a general store. And this store actually becomes a huge success. But... Thanks to a fire caused by arson in 1851, he is advised to head down to San Diego, which is exactly what he does with his partner, Lewis Franklin. And he does this immediately because in 1851, they open a store called the Tinda in San Diego. Then the next year in 1852, Franklin actually sells out, Wiley buys him out, and they part ways. But Thomas's business is booming. His business is booming so well, he actually heads back to New York because he's like, I need to go get my girl. So he returns to New York and marries Anna Eloise Luani in 1853. Now, Anna herself was also born in New York on March 31st, 1832. And together, they return back to San Diego to begin their family. Then in 1855, despite knowing that the parcel of land was used to hang people. The city puts this parcel of land up for sale, and Thomas buys this very same plot of land that he himself witnessed Yankee Jim's hanging, and per his own design, he starts construction on what would become the Wiley home in 1856. The home is designed with a brick exterior, which is considered to be the first brick building in California. It was also considered to be a beautiful example of the Greek Revival architecture. Thomas, sparing no expense, used mahogany and rosewood throughout the house. He also used Brussels carpeting and he donned the windows with elegant damask drapes, which are beautiful, even now in 2021. 
This house was actually so stunning, it was actually considered to be one of the most absolute finest homes in Southern California. Then, in 1857, Thomas, Anna, and the children begin to move in. They will eventually have six children. So we're talking Francis Hilton, who was born on December 28th, 1854. Thomas Wiley Jr., who was born on August 18th, 1856. Anna Amelia, who was born June 27th, 1857. George Hay Ringgold, November 5th, 1860. Violet Eloise, October 14th, 1862. And Corinne Lillian, formerly known as Lillian, on September 4th, 1864. So they move in with the first three children. And within a few months, they open a general store inside the residence. But almost immediately, the paranormal activity begins. And one of the most prevalent activities is that they continuously heard heavy stomping, heavy footsteps in the house and they eventually come to believe that it is the ghost of Yankee Jim, who had, like we've mentioned before, was hung on the property. And there's actually this archway that Thomas Wiley had told his children he believed the gallows had actually stood. So he would point to this archway in the home and say, Yankee Jim struggled but died right here. But you have to remember, as the gallows, he was the most famous for the most gruesome, but there were others. Now, as I said before, Yankee Jim went around stomping around the house, heavy footsteps, making a lot of noise, causing a lot of racket. Here's why I think old Yankee Jim was stomping around. Aside from being strangled to death in front of a large crowd, because again, there's no TV or Google, after Yankee Jim died, he was too tall to fit in the standard-sized coffin. So instead of wasting money on building a known criminal a coffin that would fit him, they broke his legs to make him fit the standard-sized coffin, which to me is exactly why Yankee Jim is stomping around because he's showing everyone that his legs still work and the afterlife. And in addition to the stomping around like an asshole, he also liked to make eerie noises. He would leave disembodied footprints. And on occasion, he would do something to spook the family, the, the Whaley family members, throughout their entire living existence there. But Yankee Jim's presence is just the beginning of bad juju. You have to remember... He built the house on top of the gallows and on top of cemetery land, okay? On January 28, 1856, poor baby Thomas Wiley Jr., who was suffering from scarlet fever, passes away at the young age of 18 months. After baby Thomas dies, they start hearing the sounds of tiny footsteps. They start hearing the sounds of him crying. And they even start hearing the sounds of a baby giggling when nobody is in sight. Now, a few short months later, a fire breaks out into the house and it destroys the general store. So between losing their baby and now losing 
their store, their their livelihood, Thomas ups and moves the family back to San Francisco. And they remain in San Francisco for the next 10 years. Thomas actually starts making investments. He starts working the general store scene again. In fact, he even was so prolific and well-known for owning and operating stores. He gets sent to Alaska when the United States takes over Alaska when we buy from Russia, that he actually sets up stores in Siska, and he basically helps establish an American base there. And he's there, and he's doing such a good job that in 1867, he actually gets elected to be a councilman in Sitka. So between, you know, doing this business and between his investments and thanks to a decent inheritance that he receives, Thomas actually becomes pretty financially sound. And after a massive earthquake in Hayward on October 21st, 1868, they decide to head back to San Diego. Now, of course, they have to begin the repair work caused by the damage. They actually let it sit for like 10 years. But the paranormal activity continues. And it makes sense because as any paranormal investigator will tell you, construction or rather reconstruction in this case will stir up paranormal activity right up. Workers and visitors begin to notice strange and mysterious sounds. They begin to see strange and mysterious things. They started experiencing strange aromas, and they just started having like these weird encounters that just, just didn't feel right. But they also claim to have felt very powerful presence whenever they were inside the home. Like, I, I don't feel like I'm alone. There's a, I feel like something's with me. And in addition to all of this, People outside the home began reporting seeing apparitions in the windows. So the people inside are like, I don't feel alone. The people outside is, there's somebody in there. So it's just all around paranormal stuff going on as they're fixing this home. But despite these issues, by the end of 1868, the home is back up to snuff and the Wiley family's life continues. In fact... This house will become the headquarters of the city courthouse, a general store, again, and the site of San Diego's first theater troupe. But remember, good things don't last too long here. This is bad juju land. Just as the Wileys were settling back in, Thomas rents the upstairs portion of the house to Thomas Tanner, the leader of the Tanner troupe. Tanner has got a vision. He's going to be the best of Broadway in San Diego. He sets up a stage and and an audience chamber large enough to fit 150 people. And along with his daughter, Soledad, who he dubbed his leading lady. However, again, this bad juju land, all of this fun entertaining comes to an end when Tanner drops dead backstage after a performance one night soon after the theater opens. So even people who aren't even part of the Wiley household, have these terrible, terrible moments and, you know, die. Then, in August of 1869, the county of San Diego signs a two-year lease to use the front first floor commercial space as the county courthouse, and they also sign the lease to use three of the rooms upstairs for storage of the county records for $65 a month. And it's a two-year lease, but... By 1870, local merchants began to slowly move to the newly established 
Newtown, the new San Diego, which was called or referred to as the gas lamp quarters, basically shifting from old San Diego to new San Diego. Then in July of 1870, the people in Newtown, San Diego, voted to move San Diego Court House over to a place called Horton Hall, which of course was located in the new section. But Thomas Wiley has a lease. However, this does not matter to the new town of San Diego. On April 4th, 1871, at 2 a.m. in the morning, while Thomas Wiley is actually out of town, the sheriff, Sheriff French, along with some of the new townspeople, ransacked the Wiley house and literally held the remaining Wiley family basically at gunpoint while people went into the home, took all of the county records, like I said, ransacked the house, destroyed property, and removed the the San Diego courthouse paperwork and furniture. And for the next 20 years, I mean, we're obviously talking down the line, Thomas Wiley would try to get compensation for the damage done in the ransacking and to get the lease acknowledged and repaid and you know because the city of San Diego broke the lease but the city would never pay him a dime he just he never gets redemption for this moment now with this money gone and with very little capital coming in from 1874 to 1875 the Wiley family is in dire straits. In fact, they ended up depending on Thomas's brother Francis for some financial support. But by 1881, Thomas gets into the real estate business and his finances begin to smooth out. So, in theory, things start to look up for the Wileys. But again, no, not really. Nothing good lasts here. And despite that, you know, the children, the family life continues, the children grow up, and some of them start branching out into matrimony. On January 5th, 1882, two of the Wiley daughters host a double wedding in the parlor. We're talking Violet, you know, Violet Eloise, and her sister, Anna Amelia. Both are very excited for their new lives. Violet marries George Bertolacci, and Anna marries her first cousin, John Wiley. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say to that, but it happens. And here again, the bad juju of the Wiley family home crops up. While on her honeymoon, George ups and leaves Violet, as it turns out, he only married her to gain access to her inheritance and George tells Violet all about his sordid past and basically she realizes that she has married a con artist now supposedly there's there's conflicting information supposedly he wanted to show his worthiness to her but Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Wiley after he abandoned her on the honeymoon were like no you're never seeing our daughter again but then other things that I read was that he just basically upped and left her. Either way, poor Violet falls into this great, great despair. She gets a divorce a year later, 
but she cannot shake this 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 horrific moment. In fact, she even gets shunned by society because a married woman being abandoned by her husband, A, despite the fact that he's a worthless piece of shit, but B, then she gets a divorce. I mean, those are horrible strikes against a poor, unfortunate woman whose only crime was falling in love with the wrong guy who wooed her intentionally with ill intent on his part. Doesn't matter, because on August 19, 1885, again suffering from the depression and the emotional anguish, and again basically being shunned by society, Violet takes her father's thirty two caliber, goes outside to the outhouse, and commits suicide by shooting herself in the chest. She was only 22 years old. So, I mean, obviously, she was exceptionally depressed. But top it all off, because here again, a whole image and upstandingness and notion of what is acceptable in society. Her sister, Corinne Lillian, was actually engaged at the time of her sister's death. And her fiancé, Corinne Lillian's fiancé, actually breaks off the engagement due to the scandal Violet's suicide causes. And Corinne Lillian actually never marries. Now, after these tragic events, Thomas is like, we can't be here anymore. We've got to go. We've lost our son. We've lost our daughter. And he goes and he builds a single-story frame for the family at 399 State Street in downtown San Diego. And that's where everyone goes to live, leaving the Wiley house to go vacant over the next two decades. And, of course, a neglected house typically falls into despair. But time passes, and on December 14, 1890, Thomas dies due to health-related issues at the State Street house. After he dies, though, Anna, the daughter, dies in Modesto, in Modesto, California, 15 years later, on December 12, 1905. Then, in late 1909, Francis, the firstborn son, decides, you know what, guys, it's time. We're going to restore the building. We're going to turn it into a tourist attraction. And that's exactly what he does. Now, he actually goes and he lives there. And by 1912, seeing after the house has probably calmed down somewhat, Anna Wiley, the mom, Thomas's widow, joined by her daughter, Corinne Lillian, and their son, George, all end up living together at the Wiley house. On November 24th, 1913, Anna, the widow, the mom, she dies at the ripe age of 80. A year later, Francis Wiley will die, on November 19th, 1914. He is then, 14 years later, followed by his brother George on January 5th, 1928. And this leaves Corinne to live out the rest of her life in the home by herself until 1953. Now, of course, with all of these deaths, of course, being built on the gallows, of course, with the suicide of Violet, this place is very much haunted. I mean, we're talking pretty much everybody but Thomas dies in this home. 
Now, today, the ghost of a young woman believed to be Violet has been seen on numerous occasions on the second floor of the house. They believe that she basically lives there. Cold spots are frequent throughout the mansion, and they actually do think that's Violet. Their stairwells is believed to be the wandering area for Thomas. So even though he did not die on the property, it would appear that his spirit made its way home, maybe to be with the rest of the family or maybe to be where a place that he did actually love despite all the terrible tragedies that happened there. Because in addition to believing it's a wandering area for Thomas, his apparition has actually been seen by people. They've often seen him wearing what they consider his trademark top hat and coat, walking in the areas of his desk, walking in the areas of his office, and even looking down from the top of the stairs. But besides seeing Violet upstairs, besides seeing Thomas, of course there are other poltergeist activity. People have reported smelling the scent of French lavender perfume permeating in the home. This lavender perfume was actually Anna's favorite, and people have also reported the scent of Thomas's cigars. Now, these guys aren't the only ones believed to be haunting the home. There's the story of Annabelle Washbourne. She was a young neighbor, a little girl, who was believed to be playing with the Wiley children, and she accidentally ran into a clothesline, got caught up in the clothesline, and basically was strangled to death. They cut her loose, they bring her into the kitchen, and they lay her around the table, and that is where she died. So some people actually believe that she is hanging around. In addition to Annabelle, it is believed that even animals are haunting this home. One visitor reported seeing a spotted dog running down the hall in the dining room. This dog is actually believed to be the Wiley's terrier, Dolly, Verdon. I didn't know dogs had different last names back then, but there you go. However, in addition to the apparitions of Violet, of Thomas, and the scents of Anna and Thomas, it has been reported that physical objects have been known to be manipulated on their own, such as the music room's chandelier. Apparently, it likes to swing back and forth at its own will. Lights like to turn on and off without anybody doing it and there is a reported frequent presence of an odd mist that likes to linger in the home others have also reported seeing curtains move when all the windows have been shut the sounds of children have been heard running up and down the stairs and the appearance and disappearance of just shadows and again the idea of not being alone when you are physically alone in the room so, today, the Wiley Mansion is considered a rather historic home. Again, we're talking almost 200 years old. And it is actually a museum that people can tour. The museum, however, is currently closed. But hopefully by next year, Halloween time, this place will be open. And it is considered an actual hot spot by multitude of ghost hunters. In fact, famous people, famous celebrities themselves have expressed very interesting uh, experiences. Anywho, so this is the Wiley House located in Old Town, San Diego. 
And again, it is considered to be one of America's most haunted homes. All right, that is all I have for you tonight. I have a contest announcement. And if you have not joined our Facebook page, this was actually announced, I would say, probably two weeks ago. For those serial killers among us, I will be giving away a free copy of Michelle McInair's book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, this November. The rules are simple. Simply send me an email regarding your favorite Where the Dark Corners Are episode. Yes, 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 yes. I've done this before, but it's always nice to get a little feedback. So send me an email with your favorite episode and I will put your letter in the pot. All emails need to be in by November 18th. And the winner will be announced on November 25th episode. So please include your address. And I encourage my international listeners. I know you're out there. England, I could see you. Uh, Belgium, I could see you. Canada, I could see you. Please do not hesitate and send me an email. Now, don't worry. Once the contest is over, I will rip up everything. I'm not a stalker. I, I literally have a lot of things to do. <laughs> but if you have any questions or concerns, of course, you can email me, reach out to me at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. So on to Facebook business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. I have a Facebook page, and if you are curious or interested, send me a request. However, if you have a place that you would someday like to see where their dark corners are or have a very specific haunted house, in mind that you would like to hear about, send me an email again at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. But until next time, please remember only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why I hope to meet you where the dark corners are. Mm-hmm.